Well, Keystone Church, good morning. Uh, It's been a while since I've been with you, and I was looking forward to worshiping with you because worshiping with you brings me joy. And I want to begin by reading a psalm, Psalm 92. I'll just read the first four verses. Uh, This psalm was written by the psalmist uh, to be sung on Sabbath days. And so I'll read it because it's a Sabbath day. Verse 1, it is good to give thanks to the Lord to sing praises to the Most High. It is good to proclaim your unfailing love in, your mor- in the morning, your faithfulness in the evening, accompanied by a ten-stringed instrument, a harp, and the melody of the lyre. You thrill me, Lord, with all you have done for me. I sing for joy because of what you had done, have done. These are instructions for us on a Sabbath day. Now, Sabbath, that means rest. It's an opportunity to, to find rest. And when you're exhausted... The end of a long day, wake up early, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, you, your body needs rest, and so what do you do? You go to bed. And when you are asleep, you are doing nothing. I don't know what happens in your brain, whether you're fully unconscious or whether it's reorganizing stuff in your head, but you wake up refreshed because you've done nothing, nothing from midnight until you wake up in the morning, and so your body gets rest when you sleep. And this verse from the psalmist is instructing us that if you want rest, not for your body, but for your soul, it doesn't call us to inactivity, but to activity. It calls us to worship. It's good for us to remember, to praise his love in the morning, his faithfulness in the evening. He says, I am thrilled when I am able to remember and reflect on the great things that you have done. And so, We gather on Sunday mornings and we sing these songs to do what the psalmist has said so that we might experience refreshing rest. So don't sit there and just fall asleep if you want rest. Remember and reflect on what God has done for us. And every time we gather Sunday mornings to to sing songs, we're not just singing. We're finding refreshment for our souls. In a bit, Pastor Kyle's going to come up and preach, and he's going to open up God's Word and God's Word for us. We want to be actively listening so that we might reflect and remember on what God has done. We might be filled with hope and joy like the Scriptures. During this season, everything looks a little bit different. It starts to feel maybe a little bit more like normal, but you don't have any bulletins. And so if you want to know what's going on at Keystone, you want to know about a women's Bible study that's coming up, you want to know about a men's night that's coming up, you want to know about a parent meeting that's coming up, you want to know about a mission meal that's coming up. The only way right now for you to know about those things, apart from me saying it on Sunday morning, uh, is for you to be uh, reading those weekly emails that go out. And because we're not doing bulletins, we are also not doing tear-offs. And some of you are like, praise Jesus that they have finally stopped doing tear-offs. I don't know if they're going to return or not, but we have an intermediary plan for us during this time. Uh, But it will require you to download an app if you've not done so already. Our church center app will allow you to check in, in person, or if you are worshiping with us from home during uh, some Sunday, you can check in at home as well by downloading that app. Uh, giving the phone number that we have recorded for you, setting up that, and then going to check in, and you can check in your whole family. If you've got kids, you can check in your kids as well. Uh, just let us know which service you're at, 9 or 1035. Let us know if you are worshiping with us in person, in the auditorium, or online. Uh, click OK, and then you're checked in. No tear-off required. And because we're not doing tear-offs, 
we're also not doing an offering bag. So for those of you who are giving online, thank you so much. Um, it, in fact, our uh, business admin showed me numbers from uh, fiscal year to date last year versus fiscal year to date this year. You would never suspect that we are in a global crisis right now uh, because of your faithfulness. So thank you very much. For those of you who want to give checks, I know Pastor Keith loves being able to physically write out the check um, and, and give that to God as his uh, gift back to him. You can still do that either by mailing it into the office or there is a small box to head out the double doors in the lobby uh, on the left-hand side next to uh, the information station center, information center. Uh, last thing, we are gearing up for the fall. Some of you parents know schools are making plans for the fall. They're, they're making plans and then they're changing those plans uh, and then they're going to change those plans again and I would guess between now and school year they're probably going to change them again. That's just the nature of having so much uncertainty. Keystone had a plan to open up on August 30th. We've changed that plan. Uh, we've pushed it back two weeks till after Labor Day. And on September 13th, we're planning on uh, reintroducing a lot of pre-COVID things like kids ministry, nursery, adult uh, Bible fellowships, ABFs. Now, the reason for us to push it back isn't necessarily because of um, COVID-related reasons, but primarily because Sunday morning experiences, what you get to participate in on Sunday mornings, requires more volunteers than you can imagine. One service at Keystone requires over 80 volunteers. Almost half of them are kids-related, nursery, kids, next generation, young adults, uh, or um, youth and young adults. And so for us to reintroduce ministries like kids, we need a lot of volunteers. And for those of you who've already volunteered, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to be able, Lord willing, open up one service September 13th for kids ministry, nursery and kids men, as well as adult Bible fellowship and, and youth ministry. But that one service for kids requires 30 plus volunteers. And right now we're trying to find who those volunteers will be. And so if you have an unswerving commitment to reach the next generation, and you're thinking, I love that Keystone cares about youth. I want to make sure that we can get back to quote-unquote normal as soon as possible. Would you send an email to serve at keystonechurch.org? Serve at keystonechurch.org. And one of our admin will pass that email on to whomever uh, needs to get it. Uh, we're looking forward to jump-starting Kidsmen again. Looking forward to eventually adding second service once we have enough volunteers. Uh, but the first step for us... Uh, is looking for those 30-plus volunteers for our kidsmen. I'm going to pray for us as we continue our worship service and we invite you to continue to pray along with me. Father God, we lift our eyes to you, maker of heaven and earth, creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. Lord, I ask that you would fill our hearts with the kind of truth that if we were able to see it and know it and love it and believe it, that we might be thrilled with joy and with hope. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be working in us during this time, not passively resting, but actively looking to remember and reflect on the mighty things that you've done, that we might find rest for our souls this morning. Lead us here for your name and your renown. Amen. Morning, Keystone. 
You can, if you have your Bibles along, open them up to Luke chapter 24. Uh, we're going to be in verses 13 through 35 this morning. A little bit of a longer passage, but we're going to take a look through it, read through it this morning. I wonder if uh, you've ever come across something that's left you thinking or feeling, what's the point of this? Maybe uh, you were doing some spring cleaning during COVID and you were cleaning out a basement or an attic and you were coming across things that, that you didn't know you had and you're like, what, what's the point of this? Why do we have this? Uh, or maybe you've helped an older parent move out of a house where they've been for many years. And as you're kind of clearing stuff out, sorting through stuff, you come across things you're thinking, what, what in the world is the point of this? I, I can't help but wonder if that's sometimes, if we're honest, how we think and feel about the Old Testament. After all, we, we call it the Old Testament, right? And, and that whether it's a certain passage or book or, or maybe even the entire Old Testament that leaves us thinking at times, what's the point of this? And in the passage that Luke includes that we're going to read through right now, Jesus is giving us the answer to that. He's telling us, here's what the point is. Let's pick up in Luke 24, verse 13. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. So they're talking about the, the past week, most likely. Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem as a king. His teaching, his miracles, the excitement that was stirred up around him. And then a shift. Him being accused, condemned, and finally put to death by the religious leaders. And now that morning, some rumors circling that his tomb's empty, uh, but, but no one's seen him yet. And so what's, what's going on? That's what they're discussing. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. What things, Jesus asked. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our religious or our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Then some women from our from our group of his followers where this tomb early this morning. They came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing and that they had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to see and sure enough, his body was gone just as the women had said. Now, depending what translation you have, it might add some important words after there that says him they did not find. We get a glimpse into the disciples think he's gone, but no one's seen him. We don't think this is real. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? 
Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus at the end, and the end of their journey. Jesus a- acted as if he were going on, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it is getting late. So he went home with them. As they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. And suddenly their eyes were open and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them, who said, the Lord is really risen. He appeared to Peter. Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, opening up your word, because we want to hear from you. We recognize that our hope is in your word, not in ourselves, and that our hope is ultimately in Jesus Christ. And so God, help us to see not only what you want us to see from this passage, but also help us to see and understand the Old Testament better as well. We, we need your help. We need your spirit. I pray that you would work in this time to open our eyes, to stir us with worship for Jesus, that we might walk out of the doors changed. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I said, but mom, you don't understand. I had a really, really good reason for hitting my brother in the head with a rock. I was, I don't remember this exactly what I said, but it was the basis of kind of what I said. As I sat there in timeout and my brother stood attending to a wound on my, or my mom stood attending to a wound on my older brother's forehead. Yes, I had picked up the rock. Yes, I had threw it directly at him. Yes, it hit him square in the forehead. I wasn't denying the facts. But I was convinced if my mom could just see the context of where that happened, if I could just shine a light on the situation for her, she'd be able to see clearly and I would go free. Because after all, we were just playing David and Goliath. And as the younger brother, I was naturally pegged for the role of David. And so my brother and I were riding our scooters back and forth and he would swing his massive sword at me, also known as a plastic wiffle ball bat. And each time he got a little bit closer. And so finally I said, that's enough, it's time to act. I picked up the closest rock. I saw him coming back at me again. I aimed, reached back, launched it, and had direct hit. Given the context, I should be celebrated, right? I, I defeated the giant. I was just following in David's footsteps. Why was I being punished for following after David's example? Obviously, uh, my defense did not work and I had to remain in time out. And looking back, my mom could have came back to me and said, no, 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 you don't understand the context. Let me shine some light on the situation for you. David and Goliath is not about you reenacting with your older brother and hitting him in the forehead. And that's kind of a, a silly example to demonstrate we are all prone to take scripture or parts of scripture out of context. And when we do, misunderstanding and perhaps even harm is soon to follow. 
Think of me, probably all of you have heard someone in some way quote Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me as the verse that assures them uh, I'm gonna win the big game or I'm gonna ace the test or I'm gonna get the date that I'm about to ask the girl out on. And we might smirk and, and maybe even laugh at those examples, but we also might miss our own tendency to take parts of the Bible out of context, perhaps big portions, perhaps even the entire Old Testament. And in the passage we just read, Jesus puts the Old Testament in its proper context, not only so that we would read it and understand it, but also so that we would find hope and joy in and through it. See, Jesus looks at the Old Testament and says, it shines a spotlight on me. That's the big idea for this morning, that the Old Testament shines a spotlight on Jesus. And just as a spotlight, if it isn't turned on, remains unhelpful, even if we know a lot about it and all its parts, I would argue, even if we know a lot about the Old Testament, we know the stories, we know the commands, we we, we can recite the facts, as long as it remains disconnected from Jesus, that it remains unhelpful to us and that it actually ends up being confusing and hopeless at times. That's what I think we see in these disciples. That's the first point I want us to see as we look back at them, that the Old Testament without Jesus is confusing and hopeless. These disciples are walking along the road, talking about all the events of the past week, and Jesus comes up beside them, but they don't know it's him. And so he asks them, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they just kind of stand still, shocked, like, are you crazy? Everyone's talking about what's happened with Jesus. It would be, it'd be kind of like if you or I were in the grocery store on March 19th of this past year, right? And we're talking to a friend about everything that's happened. It's three days after Pennsylvania shut down and someone comes up behind you and says, hey, what's coronavirus? Like, you are, do you have your head in the sand? What are you talking about? That's how they're viewing Jesus. This is what everyone's talking about. I said, well, what things? Explain them to me. And as they explain, we get this sense of their confusion and their hopelessness coming through. First of all, their confusion. How do we see that? Well, they they just can't seem to make sense of it. They can't seem to make sense of all these events. Why, Why did our religious leaders kill the person who might have been the Messiah? Why are people talking about the fact that the tomb is empty? He's dead. It's been three days. What's going on? See, their their understanding of the Old Testament and their expectations of Jesus didn't match up with the reality they were facing. The the puzzle pieces didn't fit. It didn't connect with what they were facing right in front of us or right in front of them. And they were confused by it. And I think of, isn't that in some ways what ends up with us sometimes when we approach the Old Testament? That we just get confused by it because it doesn't match up with our reality, what we face day to day? Yeah, there there are some really cool stories. You could name a lot off, right? Uh, Abraham and Sarah, the Guinness World Records for the oldest couple to get pregnant. Uh, Samson, a riddling vigilante who goes around killing the bad guys with a donkey bone. Esther, the the first winner of, or the the winner of the first season of The Bachelor. Right, all these stories, you could name more. And we think they're interesting. We like to read them, but sometimes don't we walk away? Well, what does that have to do with my life? How does that connect? And those are the clearer parts of the Old Testament, right? If we're honest. What about long lists of unfamiliar names? What about page after page 
describing in intricate detail the tabernacle or the temple? What about prophets that speak into world events and nations and happenings that are so distant from us? Doesn't it sometimes just leave us confused thinking, how does this connect to my life? And we walk away confused by it. Or even worse, we walk away hopeless, right? We see this in the disciples. We see the sadness written all over their faces as they look up to tell Jesus about what's happened. We hear the the crushed hopes coming through as they describe. So we, we thought this guy was the Messiah. We thought he was the one. And now he's dead. It's been three days. And, and pl- notice what they don't say. They don't say, well, it's okay, we've got the temple, we've got the sacrifices, we've got the commandments, we'll still be okay. And they don't say, well, at least Jesus lived a really good life and he gave us an example to follow. No, they know that the Old Testament, apart from a redeemer, is hopeless for them. And they know that a dead redeemer is of no hope for them. They'd gotten their hopes up, this guy was the one, and now they think their hopes are crushed because they were wrong. And don't, don't we all know kind of what that feels like to get our hopes up, our expectations up, only to have them get crushed? I think of a, an event that happened in my childhood as well as probably in your childhood if you've grown up in Pennsylvania. That you, you hear about a snowstorm coming and you start to get excited because you start to think, maybe I'm gonna have a two-hour delay. Maybe even better, they're gonna cancel school completely. And so the day of the storm, the storm's supposed to happen overnight. The day of, uh, you start to hear the predictions go up. One inch turns to three inches, turns to six inches, turns to nine to 12 inches before you're going to bed. And and what do you do? You plan out your day, right, the next day. I'm gonna sleep in. I'm gonna wake up and watch cartoons. I'm gonna go outside and build a snowman. I'm gonna go have a snowball fight with my neighbors, maybe do some sledding. After all that, I'm gonna come back inside, have a cup of hot chocolate, watch a good movie. I know because these are still the plans I make for snow days today when I hear it's gonna snow. And then your plan to sleep in fails because you just can't wait to see how much snow is on the ground. You open up the shades in the window, you look out, it's raining. Kidding me, right? Confusion sets in. What happened? Where, who, who got this wrong? Where do we miss this? And then soon after, hopelessness follows, right? You mean I'm gonna have to go to school today? This miserable day ruined. This is what these disciples are feeling, except far worse, because it's not just one day that's been ruined. It looks like their hopes for their entire life has ju- have just been crushed. So th- this is the first takeaway I kind of want us to see this morning that the Old Testament, or when we approach the Old Testament without Jesus, it makes someone hopeless in the end, I think. For these disciples, they had the wrong view of the Messiah. They put their hopes on the wrong understanding of the Messiah, and it left them hopeless. For us, I think more so our tendency when we approach the Old Testament apart from Jesus is to put our hopes on ourselves, and so we end up hopeless. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, that when we approach the Old Testament apart from Jesus, we try to make sense of it, try to understand how does this apply? And I think we often end up with one of what Brian Chappell calls the deadly bees. He gives three of them, and here's what they are. First of all, we have be like, 
where we take a character in the Old Testament and we say, we just need to be more like that person. Be more like Abraham, have greater faith. Be more like Moses, have a closer walk with God, pray more. Be more like David, be stronger and courageous in the face of your enemies. And it's not that there's not any truth to some of those messages. It's just that ultimately I think it misses the point because there are lots of examples in all their lives where we say, don't be like them. And the the Bible goes to great lengths, I think, to undermine many of our heroes in the Bible so that we wouldn't put our hopes in them or say, I just need to be like them. The second one is be good, where we essentially take the Old Testament and we kind of distill it down into do this, don't do this commands. And again, it's not that the Old Testament and the whole Bible doesn't have commands for us of how we should live and how God wants us to live. It's just that we tend to do this, don't do this, and we only rely on our own efforts, put our hopes in ourselves. Or the third one, be disciplined. Just pray more, read scripture more, just, just, just work harder, be, be better. And again, we end up putting it all on our effort, our hopes all on ourselves to change. Instead of shining the spotlight on Christ, we take the Old Testament and actually shine the spotlight back on us. And in that scenario, someone ends up hopeless. Either we do, because eventually we feel the weight of, I can't be like those people. I can't be good enough. I can't be more disciplined. This is hopeless. Or maybe even worse, we think we're really good at the bees and we make other people around us hopeless. Our kids our spouses, our friends, our coworkers, because inevitably, whether we try to or not, they will get the message from us that Christianity is all about having your act together. It's all about kind of mustering up effort to become a better person. And if they determine, I can't do that, then they determine Christianity offers no hope for me. It offers nothing for me. And how sad it is that sometimes this is the message people get about Christianity, in part because we've misunderstood the Old Testament, taken it out of context, and resorted to some of these deadly bees. Jesus said, the Old Testament doesn't shine a spotlight on you. It shines a spotlight on Jesus. This is the second thing we see in his conversation with these two disciples, that the Old Testament is all about Jesus. All about Jesus. The disciples uh, finish their kind of hopeless and confusing speech about what's going on and Jesus gives them a rebuke. He says, you foolish ones, how slow you were to believe all the prophets have said about the Messiah. So he didn't say, you you don't understand any of it. He just said, "You, you only understand part of it. You missed the entire portion of the Old Testament that predicted the suffering of the Messiah before he would be risen and enter into his glory. It's not that you don't understand some of it. You've just missed all of it together. And then he goes on to describe Moses and all the prophets, all the things concerning himself in the scriptures. I think, isn't it incredible? Here's Jesus with these two hopeless disciples. And in that moment, really all he had to say was, look, it's me. And show him the, the scars in his, in his hands or just reveal himself, it's me. You don't have to be confused. You don't have to be depressed. And instead he says, look at the Old Testament. It's me. It points to me all along. Now you may say that's a pretty bold claim for just one verse here or just a couple of verses. Well, let's look at some more real quick. We don't have time to look at many, but let me just give you two more. Later on when Jesus is with his disciples in Luke 
uh, 24, verses 44 through 45. Here's what he says. Then he said to them, when I was with you before. So in other words, the three years that I've been with you, teaching you, here's what I was saying. I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms, all the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Or we could look at John 5, 39 through 40, where Jesus is debating some of the biblical scholars of his day. And he says this, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Jesus is saying over and over again, when you read the Old Testament, you should see me because it's all about me. Now, we might respond to that claim and we would say, okay, wait a second. How can that be? Jesus' name is not on every page in the Old Testament. Uh, We may see how the prophecies point to him, at least some of the prophecies, but to say that all the Old Testament is about Jesus, isn't that just kind of convincing us to read back into it our own version of stuff, to actually do damage to the Old Testament? Maybe it would be like a, a hunter who every time he hears the leaves rustle or a bush stirring, he shoots his gun because he's convinced it's a deer when in fact it's just a squirrel or the wind? Isn't that maybe what we're doing when we approach the Old Testament trying to look for Jesus everywhere? Well, here's what I would say. Here's what saying the Old Testament is all about Jesus doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we are free to play mind games and that anything at all that might remind us of something else about Jesus we connect. What, what I mean by that, let me give you an example. Maybe it's, I, I'm reading in the Old Testament, I'm reading about the Ark of the Covenant, and I read the Ark was made out of wood, and all of a sudden something goes off in my head. Jesus was a woodworker. Something else, his cross was made of wood. Therefore, the Ark of the Covenant must be about the cross. Now, I, I'm not saying the Ark of the Covenant doesn't point to Jesus in some way. It's just in that case, instead of actually taking time to understand the Old Testament, what it says, we've just jumped to something that's easier for us to understand when there may be no connection at all. And just as a hunter has no grounds for shooting into the bushes saying, well, I thought it was a deer, we don't have grounds to try to play mind games or create allegories just because it might remind us of something in Jesus. But here's what I would say does mean when we say Jesus or all the Old Testament points to Jesus. It does mean the Bible, the entire Bible, is the story of God's redemption and that the ultimate way that God redeems his people is through Jesus. And so from Genesis 3.15 on to Revelation, the stage is set and every actor, every part, Every story that comes across that stage in some way points to the main actor, the hero, Jesus, even if he doesn't show up in every scene. See, when we know what the story is all about, or rather who the story is all about, Jesus, it can change, it should change how we read the entire story. I always think, when I think about this, I always think of a movie that you might watch that has a twist ending that makes you uh, understand the entire movie in a whole new light. And so maybe, maybe you're a Star Wars fan, uh, and when Darth Vader reveals to Luke, Luke, I am your father, you, you saw how that, that changed kind of how you watched that entire movie. Or maybe you've seen the movie The Prestige, and, and you know there's a twist ending in that movie that makes you see the entire movie in a different light. Or, or some other movie that you like in that way. 
I always think of the movie The Sixth Sense. It's an older movie, a thriller. It's about a, a little boy who can see and talk to people after they die in order to be able to help them. And, and there's another character, Bruce Willis, in the movie, who's a child psycho- psychologist trying to help this little boy out, trying to understand, is, is he really seeing these things or is he just crazy? And if so, how do I help him process all this? this is a heavy weight to process. And you could watch the entire movie up to five minutes left and get a lot out of it. Think, this is interesting, right? This is a fascinating story. But if you shut it off five minutes too early, you would miss what it's all about. Some of you already know this because Bruce Willis was dead the entire movie. And it wasn't him who was helping the little boy, it was the little boy who was helping Bruce Willis find peace. And all of a sudden you know the ending and you go around and you're like, I understand everything completely because I finally see what this was all about. You bring a new lens to the story and it reveals what the story was about all along. In the same way, when we bring the lens of Jesus Christ and the gospel of the Old Testament, we understand it, I think it's meant to be understood all along. This is the second takeaway, that we should bring gospel lenses to the Old Testament. And I wanna give just three basic gospel lenses I think we can bring as we read all of scripture, including the Old Testament. And they're really just three questions we can use. First one, how does this passage expose my need? In other words, how does it display human sinfulness, human brokenness, human desperation apart from God? What does it reveal about my condition that I ultimately need God to help me and change me and fix me? The second question then is, how does this passage expose God's gracious provision? How does he take care of human sin? How does he heal human brokenness? How does he meet human needs? and provide humans with hope and joy? And then the final question is, how is Jesus the ultimate provision of this? In other words, how does he, or how does the story point me forward to Jesus' person and work as the one who ultimately forgives sin, heals brokenness, and meets all my needs? Those are three questions I would encourage you actually to use this week to go to maybe your favorite Old Testament story or a passage in the Old Testament, maybe you need to make it broader and start to ask these questions. Uh, I I included some resources on the back of the notes. If you didn't get them and you want them there at the table on the way out. And there's three resources on there, but I would just add one I didn't actually include, which some of you already have, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Because it's actually an incredible, even though it's a kid's Bible, it really helps us see the gospel in the Old Testament. And for for the sake of today, let's just think about, let's practice using these three lenses for a second. And let's do it on the story that I mentioned in the beginning, David and Goliath. Because apart from Jesus, if we read David and Goliath and try to connect it to our lives, I think we end up with at best some version of, I need to be more courageous, strong in facing down my giants, knowing that God is on my side. And again, it's not that that's all wrong or it's not that that's not in there but let's think about it through these lenses. How does that story expose our need? It exposes that there are giants, there are enemies that are too big and great for us to defeat on our own. Things like sin and Satan and death for us. And how does God provide? 
What exposes is that God provides a deliverer to step in for us, take on those enemies, win, so that we might fight on the winning side and enjoy the spoils of victory. And how does that ultimately point to Jesus? Wasn't Jesus the one who was promised to come in the line of David, who was going to sit on his throne forever? And isn't he the ultimate deliverer who takes on sin, Satan, and death, defeats them, holds up their head and said, I win and so do you and me. And isn't that a story that makes our hearts burn a little bit rather than just saying, I need to be strong and courageous and say, Jesus has already won for me. Therefore, I can be strong because I know I'm on the winning side. See, I think when we apply these lenses to the Old Testament, See, over and over again how the gospel shows up, how God graciously provides to meet the needs of human sinners so that they can enjoy him forever and how he does that ultimately through Jesus. And as that starts to happen, all of a sudden we start to realize the Old Testament, Jesus uses the Old Testament to spark a fire in us. That's the third point I want to see as we look back again at these two disciples. As Jesus sits down to eat with them, he, he takes the bread, he prays for it, he breaks it, and then he hands them some. And in that moment, everything clicks. All of a sudden they realize the one who was pointing out Jesus in all the Old Testament is Jesus himself risen from the dead. This is like, if you wanna compare this story to a song, this is the part where the bass drops. If you've ever listened to any type of like dance music, house music, you know that there's this building, this building up, this stirring, this stirring. And in this story, there's this building up, this stirring within the disciples, this stirring, it's building, it's building, it's building. And then all of a sudden the bass drops and you just get up and dance, right? And these disciples just get up and dance. It was him all along, risen from the dead, pointing out to who he is through pointing to the Old Testament. Jesus had used the Old Testament to spark a fire in these disciples' hearts, to create a greater love for him that would overflow into a contagious joy for others. And it's exactly what he does for us. Let's think about this. He uses the Old Testament to spark a fire in us. That as we see Jesus shining through the Old Testament, he stirs up our love for us. And rather than seeing the Old Testament as a long list of do's and don'ts, we see it as fuel that increases our faith and love for Jesus, which is and should be the thing that motivates us to obey him. And then as we see that, he also gives us a joy that overflows. And how do we see this in the disciples, making their joy contagious? Well, I love their response. Uh, early on in the evening, they said, hey, Jesus, you shouldn't go any farther. It's getting dark. Uh, it's dangerous to travel the roads at dark. Your risk for getting attacked goes up. You stay with us tonight. But now they're back out on the roads in a half an hour, an hour to head back to Jerusalem. Even though they're probably exhausted after seven miles of walking and an emotional day, they're headed back to Jerusalem. Why? Because we've got to tell the other disciples about this. Their joy was absolutely contagious and overflowed. Someone else has to hear this. I think this, at least for me, maybe it's not for you, but at least for me, this, this reminds me of like the smell of charcoal burning in the summertime. Because here's what happens in me when I hear, or not when I hear, when I smell that charcoal burning. Immediately, I think, 
I want to get some charcoal, light it up, and grill something over it. That smells really good. It's contagious. But you think about it, charcoal in and of itself, there's nothing that great about it. It's black coal. But when you put some lighter fluid on it, you spark a match, you set that on fire, all of a sudden, the smell spreads far and wide, and everyone who smells it thinks, I want what they're cooking. I want what they have. For lack of better words, don't take this too literally, Jesus throws some lighter fluid on the Old Testament, lights a match, and sparks a fire, and it burns within these, these disciples' hearts, and their joy starts to overflow because they see it was him all along. It was him all along. That's the, the third takeaway, is the more we see Jesus in the Old Testament, the more love and joy we'll have in him. I, I often hear people respond to this story, or I even respond this way myself. I think, it would have been really, really cool to be on that road with Jesus and hear him open up the scriptures like this. And I still think that. I think it would have been really cool. But if that's all we think, we miss the point of this story. We miss that Jesus still speaks through the Old Testament today, just like he did that day, to make our hearts burn with love and our joy contagious. As one person says, I love how they say it, the fire of that first Easter is rekindled anytime that anyone sees Jesus in the Old Testament. This approach to the Old Testament, rather than being hopeless in the end for us or for others, makes our hearts burn with love and we become a source of hope and joy to those around us. Rather than communicating to people, be better, do better, we communicate, Jesus has done far better. He's done what we could never do, what I could never do, what you could never do. And it's all about him. The scriptures are all about him. And the more we see that, the more we'll love and worship him and shine the spotlight on him rather than ourselves. In, uh, in June 2019, there was a 90-year-old woman in her family who were cleaning out her house because she was moving out after many years. And they were coming across a lot of things that they thought, well, this is pointless. What's the point of this? And throwing them away. And one of the things uh, was a painting that hung over her kitchen sink. And they looked at it and thought, this is just, it was a painting of Jesus. They thought, this is just some religious icon. We need to throw this out. But a, an auctioneer who was going through the house with them stopped and said, hey, you, you should at least get it checked out. I would send it away to this gallery in Paris. They've got a, a light they can shine on it and they can really tell like, whether it is pointless or, or whether there's some use to it, whether it's valuable. So they sent it away. Uh, this gallery put it under their infrared light there and they realized this is actually a 13th century painting from a famous Italian painter uh, called Christ is Mocked that was a series of paintings depicting his crucifixion that had been lost for many years. And in October of last year, 2019, the painting went up for auction and it sold for $26.6 million. Something that seemed pointless at first sight, that seemed like just an old religious icon when it was put under the light, right light, all of a sudden became a treasure of incredible value. The Old Testament, something that may seem pointless to us at times, we may feel that way. When put under the right light, we see it's an incredible treasure because it shines the spotlight on Jesus and it's fuel that increases our love and joy in him. 
Search for Jesus in the Old Testament because he's everywhere. Use those questions, use other questions. Search for him because he's in there and pray that as we see the gospel in the Old Testament, God would use it to spark more of a fire in our hearts and that we would overflow with joy as well. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gospel message. Thank you for this story in Luke. This story that shows us not only is Jesus resurrected, but he's resurrected because that's what the scriptures promised all along in pointing to him. And and that we can experience the same hope and joy of these disciples as we open the scriptures and as we see Christ shining through. And God, I pray that that's the hope and joy we would experience that we would come to the Bible and the Old Testament especially and not think this is just a religious icon, this is just something we're supposed to read, but we would see the opportunity to see Jesus, to see who he is and to have and love him more. That's what we want so that we might live a changed life. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.